Hi everybody. Thanks for bearing with us during our little summer break. We're back and we thought we would go back to the second ever episode of the podcast because recently I listened to it and it sounded terrible. So we're going to re-record it. Mitch is going to add music because back then I was just throwing whatever I could find at it. And I really hope you enjoy. Sixteenth-century you is a sensitive soul. Not least because your parents quickly took to knocking seven bells out of you when it became obvious that you weren't cut out to follow in the family business. The family business was ditch digging. It was an honest living. Your father knew that he could provide for his family by digging. People always need ditches, he'd tell you. Dinner conversation was never very exciting, but then neither was dinner. You did try to start with, to find honest work that is, you tried that ditch digging life but you were always impulsive, quick to become frustrated, quick to become furiously angry. So you give up the honest life just as the love of your life walks into it. She was an outcast, impulsive, easily angered, frustrated by the restraints of living as a god-fearing member of society. So frustrated, in fact, that she'd been accused of being a witch. And let's not forget that to this 16th century you, witches are real. And suddenly, life begins. The sun's that bit brighter, the days are that bit warmer, suddenly that flutter in your heart becomes less a worrying symptom of some unknown killer disease and more a frisson of excitement at every stolen glance. You want to marry her, this witch, and you want to have a family, but you're not going to be caught dead to digging ditches for the man now, are you? So how are you going to provide? If you take only one lesson away from this, it's that little kids have to eat. You've run away from home, moved to the other side of the country, and you're spending your nights in caves and ramshackle little camps that are barely fit to keep the Ayrshire wind off you. Sure, things could be going better, but you were free, and robbing unsuspecting travellers on the road was brilliant, since they were so unsuspecting, and you only had to work when you needed the money. But, if you need to spend your hard-earned plunder on food to make sure that you and your new brood can live day to day, isn't that a bit self-defeating? What if you could provide a source of income and a source of food? Your mind might leap to farming. And in a way, it does. Because if you rob unsuspecting travellers, kill them and spirit their bodies away to cover your crimes, what's to stop you taking the next logical step? This is Scotland a podcast about history and where we made it. I'm Michael Park. So let's say that this 16th century you isn't you at all, but that your name is Mr Bean, and the woman who stole your heart either by ritual sacrifice or by being a total charmer is called Black Agnes. You're not the Mr Bean we all know and love. Oh no, you're Alexander Bean. The storybooks have a different name for you. They call you Sonny Bean, 
and you're no lovable fool. You're reckless, impulsive, you're violent, but most importantly of all, you're resourceful. After all, you know that since you've spent your time marauding around the countryside, lifting the valuables of anyone who crosses your path, then packing them off to meet their maker, then there's a very good chance that rocking up in the local village trying to pay for a jigget chop with their wedding ring would earn you a one-way trip to the gallows. So you apply the farming principle to things. You're butchering livestock for their valuable parts anyway. So why let any of their value go to waste? You'd flay the corpses of your victims, gut them, and cook their meat. You'd have more than enough to feed a growing family and you'd have corpses that were mutilated enough for the locals to believe that they were torn apart by wolves. Were any of you in the least bit freaked out by the thought of eating your fellow man? Nah. Agnes was already into it before she even met you. So what's next, now that you can provide for your family? Someone born in the 50s once told me that it's property, so let's go with that. After all, you can put down roots, you can expand your horizons, and for the Bean family, it was all about location, location, location. And there it was, on the Ayrshire coast, just past Girvan and before you get to Ballantrae, there's a little cove, and in that cove, there's a little cave. By the time the tide came in, they realised that the cave was completely obscured from view. It was perfect. The location meant that not only were their comings and goings out of sight, but they were able to use new tactics and ideas to claim their victims, since it was easy to set up ambushes on the road which ran above their new forever home. They would stop people on a regular basis but only those travelling alone. They would rob them and murder them before dragging the body back to the cave to be pickled and preserved. They could stock up on food that way for the lean winter months. And since no one knew they were there, the rumoured random bandit attacks from the surrounding area having trailed off some, and the incredibly hungry and incredibly thorough wolves having apparently moved on too, they could eventually get their essentials from the town using the money that they stole. Anything that could be identified, any kind of finery, clothing or jewellery, was kept in the cave in an ever-expanding treasure hoard. So it went on. The robbings, the killings, the breeding. All in all, the Beans had 14 children, and the kids, unlike their father's truncated career in ditch digging, went straight into the family business. Unfortunately, that wasn't the only thing they kept in the family. They say they had 18 grandsons and 14 granddaughters, and since the only way you went back to Sonny Bean's cave if you weren't part of the family was if you were dinner, I think you can get the gist. Some say that this was all encouraged by the patriarch, whose madness had become so all-encompassing that he had decided to, quite literally, raise an army. And after more than 25 years of murdering passers-by on the road, the Bean Clan finally ran headlong into a problem. 
You can have as many inbred little ankle biters as you like, but that doesn't mean that they're going to be competent. In fact, with each passing generation, their capacity to do much of anything would probably diminish a fair bit, but that's by the by. And so, with the body count said to be near to a thousand, the Bean family went out on the night of the local fair, a bumper evening for pickings, to partake in their favourite pastime, murder. If you're enjoying the show, you can support us for as little as $3 a month on our Patreon. You get loads of cool stuff, early access to episodes, exclusive readings, Mitch makes music just for you, Jamie makes art just for you, I do whatever it is I do just for you. Head over to patreon.com forward slash bequietmedia and join us today. When there's nearly 50 of you, you don't need to worry as much about killing lone wanderers out on the path. So one bean hunting party was quite happy to attack a couple coming home on horseback from the fair. They took the wife easily, but the husband was a decent swordsman and despite being dragged from his horse, was able to keep the cannibalistic clan at bay. With every minute that the fight dragged on, more and more groups of revellers from the fair happened upon the attack and the vicious band of brigands retreated into the night. The man was taken back to the town by his saviours, and from there, things started to move very quickly indeed. The king, James VI, was so incensed that this group of merry murderers had been offing his subjects for so many years that he sent 400 of his best men along with some particularly hungry dogs, to hunt them down. Some stories say he went along himself, but stories say a lot of things. The dogs didn't need a scrap of clothing to track. After a couple of hours combing the beach, the tide began to go out, and suddenly they were greeted by the opening of a cave. The smell of eviscerated human flesh was enough to turn even the strongest stomach. They found the beans inside, huddled up against the invasion of civilization, surrounded by piles of valuables raided from their victims, useless to them due to inscriptions or identifiable designs. Carcasses lined the walls along with blood-soaked tables and tools where the bodies had been butchered. Forty-six members of the Bean clan gave up without a fight. What happened to the other two? No one knows. They were all taken to Edinburgh to face royal punishment. The women and children were lashed to stakes, left alive long enough to watch as the men were dismembered and allowed to bleed to death. Those that remained were then set on fire. And right up until the end, old Sonny himself was spitting at his executioners, shouting, It's not over. It'll never be over. The life of Sonny Bean was over. But the story lived on and has inspired hundreds of tales of murder, intrigue and gross incest. If you've ever seen Wes Craven's The Hills Have Eyes or the remake, you'll be familiar with the story. But this tale of the vicious Scottish cannibal Sonny Bean doesn't really appear until around the time of the Jacobite Uprising, 
and it appears in English pamphlets. In the cave itself doesn't appear in stories until 1896, more than 300 years after the whole thing supposedly happened. So maybe the story is just that. A story, like the bogeyman, made up to scare children off misbehaviour. Or since Sonny is an old derogatory term for Scots, maybe it was just some propaganda, invented to scare the English public from sympathy for their teeth-bearing, people-eating, family-loving Scottish neighbours. But the best myths, they do have their roots in the truth. Cleek is a Scots word that means to grab, or to grasp, or to seize. It was also a name given to a large hook that was usually used to hang meat. So when you meet a man who went by the name Christy Cleek in the next 10 seconds, I assume you already know where this is heading. Andrew Christie lived in Perth, and according to the few records of the time he was a butcher, because of course he was. Christie was a respectable member of society, but this was the middle of the 14th century and decades of war between Scotland and England had devastated the country. Food stocks were at an all-time low, entire herds of cattle were regularly slaughtered to feed travelling armies, and land became overgrown as men who had once worked the fields departed to fight their enemies from the south. The poor people left behind had to try and survive on what they could hunt or forage. There wasn't much available for either. The rich people were fine. They always are. So desperate times call for desperate measures. Christie led a group who had resolved to split what they found between them in the hope that they might all just have enough to survive. But things weren't going to plan. Initially, they had managed to catch a few wild animals in the woods surrounding the cave in which they'd taken shelter, but the animals were beginning to stay away, weary of the human hunters, hiding in the dark. Rooting around for nuts and berries wasn't really working out either, which left the little band of survivors right on the edge of starvation. Until one day, one of the starving group passed away, and Andrew Christie, the butcher from Perth, had an idea. The poor woman wasn't enough to feed the group, and Christie told them that another would have to die. It would be chosen by short straw, and it would let them build up enough strength to go out and find victims from elsewhere. They chose at random, unless there was a choice between somebody travelling on foot or someone on horseback. The horse provided another excellent source of meat, and varieties of spice of life so they would drag the traveller to the ground using a huge iron hook fixed to the end of a pole. The clique was suddenly seared into the imagination of every traveller. It started out as desperation, but it soon became something else, something much worse, something primal and terrifying, driven more by greed and bloodlust than the need to survive. Before too long, an armed force was sent to track them down. Some say Christie himself escaped justice and lived out his days as David Maxwell, a wealthy merchant in Dumfries. But court records from the time, scant as they are, tell us that a man and a woman were tried and executed 
for cannibalism around the time of Cleek's activities. But for generations, the name Christy Cleek was enough to make even the rowdiest child sit quietly in their seats as their head filled with visions of a wide-eyed cannibal, blood dripping from his teeth and the giant hook that he scraped along the ground, waiting to rip wee kids away from their families. The bogeyman was real. He lived in a cave in the woods. And if you didn't eat all of your peas, Christy Cleek was gonna get you. You've been listening to Scotland. It was written and produced by me, Michael Park, and is a production of Be Quiet Media. The music for every episode of Scotland is by our own fine young cannibal, Mitch Bain. You can check out more of his work at mitchbain.bequiet.media. Jamie Mowat does amazing illustrations for us, which you can see in our episode art. See more and buy prints at tidlin.com. Scotland is supported by Chris Lingwood and listeners like you on Patreon. You can get loads more from us for as little as $3 a month at patreon.com forward slash bequietmedia. You can find out more about the show and read transcripts on our website, scotlandpodcast.net. And we're on Twitter, Facebook and Instagram too. Find us by searching Scotland, a Scottish history podcast. Thanks for listening. Look after each other. Wear a mask. Get vaccinated if you can. Don't eat anyone. We'll see you next time.